Welcome, everyone, back to the Mind Your Money podcast, a show hosted by Public.com that examines the relationship between investing, human behavior, and happiness. I'm Douglas Bonaparte, president of Bonafide Wealth. I'm Morgan Housel. Today, we're going to be talking about what everybody else is talking about, which is the new social media platform, Threads, and why Mark Zuckerberg keeps trampling his competitors. Later in the show, we're speaking with the one and only Daniel Pink, the author of several New York Times bestsellers, including Drive, The Power of Regret, and To Sell is Human. We're going to talk about how regret can be used as a tool to make better decisions and how it can be a dangerous liability if not managed properly. But first, let's kick things off with a thread about threads. Morgan, what are your early thoughts on this platform and its potential to be a Twitter killer. It's here. Is it? I mean, I mean, the, the, the preamble here is that I've been addicted to Twitter for 12 years as tens, hundreds of millions of other people have as well. And when threads came out last night, within 30 seconds, within 30 seconds of using it, I said, Twitter's done. Twitter is screwed. This is going to be it. But here's the question. Why? And what's, what's interesting is I'm sure it'll get better, but threads today, as of this morning, to set the time here, it came out less than 24 hours ago as, as yeah, we were taping yeah. this year. I got it late last night. I got it. Yeah. By almost any technical definition, it's worse than Twitter. There are countless features that threads does not, not have that Twitter has. There's nothing there, but nothing. everybody, everybody, me, you, and everyone else you see on threads is saying, this is it. This is the one I love it. And I guarantee you it's true for me. I have spent five times as much more time on threads in the last 24 hours than I would have on yeah. Twitter. So the yeah. question is why I think so many people yearn for something new because a lot of people, their experience on Twitter three, five, seven, ten 10 years ago was magic and it's tapered off since then. But yeah. then you start to answer like, why is that? I've long had this theory well before this happened with Twitter and threads that almost nothing stays cool for more than 10 years. Nothing. It's true for cities. Like San Francisco was the coolest yeah. city in America for the 2010s. And now it's like falling yeah. off into a joke. It's true yeah. for styles. It's true for music. It's true for anything. And I think Twitter, even if it was actually great over the last six months, 12 months, People just got tired of loading the same app day after day. Nothing stays cool for 10 years. And then there's also kind of like the gut feelings that so many people have towards Musk, which I understand about, especially when this thing used to be such a big part of your life and it used to be so powerful and you view mm. rightly or wrongly that the richest man came in the world and broke it. You're so eager to get revenge and you don't even want a new app. You want revenge over the guy who broke what you used to have. I think that's at least part of what's going on here. Okay. So I'm with you on part of it. I, I think those vibes are there. And I've been saying with you, I've been playing on it five times. We're both, I guess, power users of Twitter. We have big followings. We use it. We're addicted. We know the algorithm. It, it flows through our bloodstream. And here comes threads, literally copy paste of Twitter. You're right. There's no hashtags. There's no DM. It seems a little quirky to me that, you know, all right, fine. It integrates over into Instagram. Like you can, you know, hit the envelope, a little paper airplane and bring your thread over into your story. So I got to work with two apps here. My point is this. I, I, I did what you're saying. But right now, I think, is this moment where nobody knows what they're doing on threads and nobody knows how the algorithm works. And it's fun. 
it's fun because everyone is at zero. Now, I know celebrities have come in a day before and have brought big swaths of following. So not everyone's starting at like zero followers, but everyone's starting at zero. You don't know what you're doing here. It's, I wouldn't go as far as to say like the Wild West, but everyone's trying stuff. Like even me, I'm posting on there every, you know, hour or something. I'll do a meme. I'll do a serious post. I'll, I shot a video. I'm just trying to see what works. I'm kind of excited that I got nothing to lose here, right? And especially for the big accounts over on Twitter who have been, and I'll speak for myself here, become so concerned with the content that they create, that they don't want to disturb or disrupt or upset their audience that's expecting something. Nobody's expecting anything out of me over here. And it's actually unlocked my ability to create. And I think this will only happen for a little while as there will be, whether it's hashtags or news for you. I'm, Heather, my wife just today, who's been playing around with it as well, is like, I can't even get my news here. Like I wouldn't know what's going on by just, being on thread. So the evolution of this platform, there's no ads, right? We're in an ad-free threads. What's that going to look like? How how good, native, abysmal, disturbing to the flow of your feed is, is that going to be? We're just given this like very raw, very basic form of like Twitter and everyone just gets a shot to go do crazy stuff. And I'm here for that. But I also know that I'm going to last. I mean, this is what happened to the big Facebook app, the actual, the, the blue Facebook app. Like it was the coolest thing in the world for everyone circa 2010, 11, 12. And today, if you are under the age of 60 and you're using the Facebook app, like walk yourself wow. out of the room. It's not going to work. But why did that happen? Did the app stop working? Did it break? No, it just got not cool anymore. So I think a lot of these things have like a 10 year shelf life. You're totally right too about nobody knows what they're doing on threads. It's like, it's, but everybody there, has social media experience on Twitter, virtually everyone at least. And so this is not like Twitter in 2007 where people just didn't really know what it was for. And almost it's almost like the example is, or the analogy is everyone is like, you're a really talented banker at Goldman Sachs. And then you move yeah. to Morgan Stanley. Like, you know what you're doing. You've done this before. You have skills, but you have no idea what the new culture is. And you're just kind of testing out what is appropriate and what is not and what works and what doesn't. I also wonder, like at least from the information that's out there, that Twitter's ad revenue has fallen 59% in the last year, roughly since Musk took over 59%. And that's where the layoffs come from. That's where everything. And even if you were, if threads were to siphon off, I'm making this up 20% of users, yeah. which does not seem unreasonable. It could be way more than that. How precarious is Twitter to bankruptcy at this point? I don't know. I don't think anyone outside of the core Twitter investors and employees really know the answer to that question. But then you brought up competition about how it's great now that there's competitors. I'm, I'm completely making this up, but it seems like if Facebook were to go, or excuse me, if Twitter were to go bankrupt, Mark Zuckerberg would be like, let me have it. And yeah. then, and then you integrate all of your, your, all of your Twitter followers, just, they just call integrated in. And then there's one, it's the new Twitter. And there's part of me that's like, I, I think I would actually take that relative to what we have now because A, it would be cool again because it's new and B, you would have the infrastructure and the employees to keep it going that Twitter has axed off in the last 12 months. All right. So what about this? Like Twitter is the de facto town square, right? It's it's the town hall right, right now. That's That's the way I would describe it. Like I, and maybe because I'm too close to using all of these platforms, 
there's something that's not rubbing me the right way about, you know, having to flip between, I already flip between Twitter and Instagram, right? I'm getting my video content. I, I don't mess with TikTok. I know I should, you know, all right, there's TikTok too, which I think is is the rival to the stories and the reels over on Instagram. And maybe the demographics run different. So they both have a spot. But there's something about going between Twitter for its town hall purpose and Instagram to go, you know, binge video content. I'm not even that interested in, in the pictures on there, honestly. It's it's the video content that I'm there for. But then I got to what? Flip out of that to, to, I'm losing track of the names here, to threads, to go see pretty much Twitter again. I, I, I'm, I'm, kind of curious as to why threads didn't just get directly integrated into Instagram to remove that friction and whether that will actually come to haunt, you know, um, threads long-term survival. And the last thing I'll say is there, there's going to be an inflection point here where the hype of this thing dies down. I mean, like threads has to continue to roll out features that continue to make people go, ah, cool. That feature's here now. I'm going to spend more time here. Ah, that feature's here now. Or this is a new feature that I don't have over there that I am now going to tinker with and get my time. Otherwise, I think there's a real risk that people are like, this was cool. Uh, I'm not going to watch videos on, on threads. I'm going to go back to Instagram and if I want to know what's going on in the world and follow my favorite meme accounts or hear from my favorite celebrities, Twitter it is. And I think, yeah, I, think big... I think as long as threads matches what Twitter has, and of course they have the employees and the infrastructure to implement all of that, it'll win. I think, I think, I think that's the only bar they have to clear is, is it at least as good as Twitter? And I think that's a, that's a pretty low bar given where Twitter is, as long as they can do that. I, I don't think they have to reinvent the wheel or come up with any like spicy, shiny new feature. I just think they just need to recreate Twitter. Are, are the core Twitter users really that upset with Twitter that they would really want to in mass? And we don't have any data, right? We're making this shit up. We don't have no, any we data. Do. We do have our, in the first 14 hours, there were yes. 30 million threads. 30 million. 14. We, it's, we such a, the... in, it's an incomprehensible number yeah, for a brand it's, new it's, product. It's, it's insane. However, you know, here I am defending Twitter. It's insane. However, you have how many Instagram and Facebook users to go make that happen. I mean, it's already there. It's not like, it's not like Vine video was recreated again. You know, it's like, like when TikTok showed up I, I, at this point, I'm more, I'm more impressed with a social media platform that never existed, you know, and isn't backed by any or, you know, already established site that is able to bring in users uh like that that to me is more impressive not so my guess and it's just a guess my guess is of those 30 million signups in the first 14 hours 90 percent of them or 95 percent of them were active twitter users you're entitled to your opinion i was thinking maybe something more more along the lines of like 30 to maybe 50 percent i think the vast majority were uh were instagram and facebook users Will we ever get this data? Doug, Mark Zuckerberg's comment about what he wants threads to be is a friendly place that promotes kindness and whatnot. And I just thought, okay, great goal and whatnot. But as soon as you get critical mass, humanity comes out 
and yeah. the humanity as we've as everyone's seen from social media the bigger it gets the crazier the ruder the meaner it always gets so i'm like okay cool goal and maybe the algorithm will like only promote kindness but the other thing we've seen from social media is that what gets clicks what gets advertisers is the stuff that's the most controversial course um yeah this is kind of stuff that uh i don't i don't buy that for a second right i don't i don't buy that um that threads is going to become you know this utopia of kindness um i i think one of my first threads was you know the guy rubbing his hands you know the, the football player in the yellow jacket you know crypto scammers you know and basically making a joke that it's only a matter of time before the crypto scammers come out and start doing that and you know i was impressed right off the bat i didn't see any of that it was still clean cut pure social media happening still probably right now it's still pretty clean uh and then today actually um you know i guess within the 24-hour window i actually did see a reply um that was a copy of a thread that was uh, like a forex crypto uh type thing so there we go it's it's you know it's inevitable um this won't be I mean, come on i haven't been on facebook in a long long time but the, <laughs> you gotta read the comments in any neighborhood you know what are they called um page you know pages for like your local town or a mom's group or a dad group the second a political hand grenade is thrown into there or someone says something about kids or politics or whatever you know it, it gets unhinged all the hot takes all the grime comes out um so com coming to a threads near you it's inevitable would you agree with that like just get, just yeah. give it time. Yeah, it's but it's great right now. Before that's happened, it's like Threads still got the new social network smell, and it's great. Yeah. And and that's and that's kind of my my only thing I'm certain about right now. Right, we we could literally say whatever we want in terms of the future of of Threads as a platform, but only thing I know right, I would immediately discount anyone who knows who thinks they know what they're talking about, um, including us. And then two, um. Is this, hey, enjoy the, like, I would say this, go and, uh, it, you know, it was Gary V who said it. Um, it's not going to be Twitter or threads. It's Twitter and threads. And I think I would agree with his biggest point on this uh, in a video he did yesterday, which is you got to try new things. And I think you are being rewarded right now by trying this new platform because I'll admit, kind of fun right now. And how, how long will that fun last? I don't know, man. Does does Zuck know how to party and have fun? All right, that was super fun. There you go. All things threads here in the new age of social media. But now let's bring on our guest, Daniel Pink. Dan, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. I heard this quote years ago from Daniel Kahneman, and he was asked what you need to be a good investor. And he said, one of the things you need to be a good investor was a well-calibrated sense of your future regret. And mm -hmm. I was like, ah, oh, yes, that's so good. That is so smart. That's like the def, in my view, that was the definition of risk is what are you going to regret in the future? And then of course, there's a very well-known Jeff Bezos interview where he talks about the regret minimization framework, where his goal in life basically is to be on his deathbed and have as few regrets as possible. And then my last little anecdote here before I turn this over to you is David Cassidy, his last words on his deathbed were so much wasted time. Mm. And I remember reading that and thinking like, that, that, that's the worst feeling. 
That's the worst sense of regret that anyone could have on their deathbed. Your book on regret, though, that came out about a year and a half ago, flips a lot of this on its head. And as you so often do, gives the other side of it that's easy to overlook about the power of regret and how sometimes regrets kind of force us into action to make sure we don't make those same mistakes again. My first question for you, where did you get this idea for this book? You've written so many books. Where was the aha moment of where this came from? Well, well, first I want to say that I'm delighted that I won my Kahneman, Bezos, David Cassidy parlay bet for today. <laughs> so thank you for that. That cashed in at, at uh, 36 to 1. So I appreciate wow. that, Morgan. Yeah, I know. It's a big day for the Pink family. I, I got it um, basically based on experience. Um, and, you know, it really began, the, the idea for this book actually began uh, in a strange way at my elder daughter's graduation from college. Um, I don't know if you guys have quite hit that milestone in your life, but it's a jarring milestone um, uh, because you it, it has so much to do with time, uh, as David Cassidy is saying. And you see a kid who's 22 years old walk across the stage and you think, holy crap, this kid was just born. How, is this, how can this possibly be happening? And also you look at yourself and say, how can I possibly have a kid who's 22 years old? Because I myself, I'm only like 29. Um, and as I started reflecting on this, I, I, I realized I had a lot of um, regrets about my own college experience. I wish I had worked harder, for instance. I wish I had been kinder. And when I came back to Washington, where I live, I very sheepishly began telling some people about these regrets. And I was sheepish because I knew no one wanted to talk about any their regrets because it's like, no, 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 no. You just move on. Be positive. Look forward. And what I discovered is that everybody wanted to talk about this stuff that, that opened the floodgates. And, you know, as a writer, you know, that's an incredible response. You know, um, when, when people just kind of gush forward. And so uh, to make a long story longer, I was actually working at a working on an entirely different book, which I put aside and uh, started looking at this research on this emotion and found some new ways into the research and said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I don't think this is a book that I would have written in my early 30s. Um, it's a book in my early 50s that felt maybe inevitable. Now, talk a little bit. Do, do you think... Bezos is right about the regret minimization framework that we should go through our lives trying to have as few regrets as possible, or is this this or is there this upside to them that's so easy to overlook? I think it's a little more complicated than that. Okay, so so let me come at that in two different ways. The first thing that we know is that everybody has regrets. That if you live your life, you are going to have regrets. Um, that, that every single person listening to this conversation has some kind of regret. Um, the only people who don't have regrets, as, as I write in this book, are, are five-year-olds because their brains haven't developed enough, people with certain kinds of neurodegenerative diseases, and sociopaths. But if you're not you know, brain damaged or sociopath or a kid, a tiny little kid, you have regrets. And what we need to do is normalize those regrets and understand that it's part of the human experience, that regrets are adaptive, um, that in some ways, in, in, I think in some very big ways, we are in some ways over-indexed on positive emotions, especially in America. Uh, we think that the only way to live a, a good life is to be positive all the time and to always look forward and never look back. And that's bullshit. That's bad recipe. Uh, what we want to do is we want to actually not ignore our regrets and not wallow in our regrets, but confront our regrets, derive lessons from them, use them to help us improve our future. So, so that's, that's one thing. Now, with regard to the Bezos thing, He's right mostly, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, it's important to minimize the right kind of regrets. And one of the things that I discovered is that in 
amassing this database. I, I went out and, and did this, something called the World Regrets Survey, where I collected regrets now from over 25,000 people in 110 countries. And, and what we find is that around the world, people seem to have the same four regrets. And these regrets give us a sense, kind of a, a, a reverse image of what people want out of life. So let me, let me be specific on the regret optimization. I think what you want to do is you want to minimize the right kind of regrets and you want to forget about everything else. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If I say, um, okay, this is, a, this is a real life example here. So we had some roofers out at our house here in Washington, D.C., because we had to replace the roof on our very old house. Now, I could say, okay, I want the very best roofer in the Delmarva area. I'm going to scout. I don't want to have any regrets about not getting the worst world-class roofer here at the Pink House. Um, I think that's a bad idea. I think you want to get a good roofer and you want to actually satisfy on a lot of that kind of stuff. If I think about what I had for lunch today, I just want to satisfy on that. If you think about what car you're going to buy, you know, in 10 years, you're not going to care. But there are certain things that we know from 25,000 people that they care deeply about. Did you build a stable foundation for your family and your team and yourself? Did you take risks, the right kind of risk? Did you live life fully? Did you connect with people you care about? Did you do the right thing? And I think if we maximize on, optimize and maximize on those, that is a very effective recipe for a life well lived. Um, I was reading a Harvard Business Review study that was uh, about regret, and it was trying uh, to link practicing gratitude as a way to deal with regret. And I would be very interested. Everyone says this, right? Oh, just, yeah. you know, practice gratitude and most of the things in your life will feel all of a sudden better, right? You hear this with meditation, but I love your take on how gratitude is a tool um, and whether or not you've come across that being something that helps either uh, minimize or maximize the types of regrets that you want or don't want in your life. Yeah, gratitude is good. I mean, we, the evidence on that is, is overwhelming, that gratitude is, is generally good for us. Um, but there's, there is a paradox here of sorts, and it, and it comes from the fact that regret feels bad, all right? So here's a, here's, here's a way to think about it. One of the amazing things about our brains is that we can do counterfactual thinking. We can get into a little time machine in our head, go backward in time, rework what really happened, get back into our time machine, come into the present and see the present reconfigured because of what we did in the past. All right. Counterfactual thinking. It's incredible. All right. It's a it's a it's a superpower of the human brain. There are two kinds of counterfactuals that we can do. One of them is what's called a a a an a downward counterfactual where you imagine how things could have turned out worse, right? So I shouldn't have married um, uh, Bob. Uh, I regret marrying Bob, but at least I have these two great kids that I'm grateful for. Uh, I shouldn't have moved to St. Louis, but I'm grateful that I have such nice next door neighbors. All right. So you imagine how things could have turned out worse. Downward counterfactuals, at least make us feel better. No question about it. And it's good to feel better. Upward counterfactuals are how you imagine how things could have been better. Um, if only I had studied um, uh, architecture instead of human resources, I would be a more satisfied professional. All right. Upward counterfactuals make us feel worse, but they help us do better if we treat them right. And the thing is, what people want is they want the do better part, but they don't want the feel worse part. 
And that's not the offer <laughs> that, that, that upward counterfactuals make us feel worse and help us do better. They help us do better because they make us feel worse. That spear of negativity prompts us to reassess our strategy and do things differently. So gratitude, I'm all for it, but gratitude doesn't always help you do better. And, and, and a way to think about it, and the way I wrote about it in this book is this, portfolio theory, man, you know, Markowitz, you know, we don't want to be, we, we don't want to be, we want to have some diversity and we want to have some diversity in our, in our investment portfolio, but we want to have some diversity in our emotional portfolio. You want to have a lot of positive emotions. You want to have more positive emotions and negative emotions, but you don't want only positive emotions because negative emotions help us. And and when we line up all the negative emotions, we have 60 years of research on this. The most common negative emotion that people experience is regret. And the reason is because if we treat it right, it's useful. And we have mounds of evidence showing that if we treat our regrets properly, it helps us become better problem solvers. It helps us become better strategists. It helps us avoid cognitive biases. Uh, it helps us um, uh, think more clearly. It helps us become better, faster problem solvers. It helps us find more meaning in life. And so... We just want a little bit of a balance here. We want a smidge of negative emotions because they make us better. They make us better because they make us feel worse. And so the idea that you should go through life feeling only good is a bad recipe for living. And when, when I think about my own life, I often reflect on how much worse things could have been if I hadn't made these tiny little know-nothing decisions in the past. If I hadn't met my wife this day, if I hadn't accepted this job, if I hadn't done X, Y, and Z, everything would have fallen apart. Are people more attracted to the negative versus the positive counterfactual? Do people kind of wallow in the what-ifs in one direction or another? It's a great question, Morgan. And the truth is, is that people are much more likely to make a, an upward counterfactual and if only negative counterfactual than a positive than a positive counterfactual and i think that's because done right it's adaptive done too much it's way maladaptive and so i think it's important for us to be sort of bilingual um ambidextrous call it what you will and be able to do both upward counterfactuals and downward counterfactuals to be able to say both if only and also at least um because they have they have different effects on our current emotions, but they also have profoundly different effects on our future, on our future performance. Again, at least make us feel better. They don't help us do better. Uh, if only make us feel worse and therefore can make us do better. I want to, I want to press that a little further. Um, do you think you get an edge by being a little bit more comfortable or better at the negative by thriving there? Or are you suggesting that really the balance, like all day long in the middle, be good at both? Um, I'm, I'm going to take a shot at this and say getting good at the negative side would actually be some alpha generating behavior. I think that's generally right. If you don't over index on that negative behavior, if you don't, if you're not always sort of yeah. uh, uh, regretting and so forth. And we have some evidence of this. There's some interesting papers about, um, uh, at the, again, a, a more, a, I think it's narrower than you're talking about. Some interesting um, evidence from executives looking at executive behavior. So executives who leaned into their regrets rather than elide their regrets um, end up becoming better strategists uh, because the ones who are kind of saying, hey, you know what, things happen for a reason, it's positive, let's be positive, let's think for, you know, um, they end up not improving nearly as much 
as the ones who are leaning into their regrets. The thing is, is that there's a degree of suffering <laughs> that comes from actually confronting one's regrets. Now, that we have specific ways to get better at channeling that mild suffering into productive behavior. But as I, you know, as I've sort of been harping on this conversation, I just think that we've just gone a little over, we've gone a little too far on positivity all the time. Um, being positive all the time is not a recipe for a life well lived. And that seems like an important thing. It seems like the window between positive behavior coming out of your regrets and just kind of slipping into depression about what you regret. It seems like it's a pretty small sliver. At least it could be for some people. It's, Where do you find that balance between this is going to help me into action? It's small because we don't know how to do it. Um, and it, the, 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 the territory widens once you know how to do it. So for instance, let me give you an example of that. So one of the most important things you can do in the face of your own regrets is there's a kind of triangulation here, right? So we want to go a third way. We don't want to ignore it. We don't want to wallow. And the same thing is true in the very first, when you start confronting your own regrets, you have sort of two ways to go. You can basically beat yourself up, uh, lacerating self-criticism and, 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 and self-talk, which we all do. Um, there's so many of us in the face of mistakes and screw-ups. The way we talk to ourselves is brutal. I mean, if you were to channel my self-talk, basically broadcast it out of my head into a microphone out there into the world, you would think I was nuts. If I talk to other people the way I talk to myself in a workplace, I'd be fired. All right. Here's what the research tells us on that. Don't do that. There's no evidence in the literature that this lacerating self-criticism boosts performance. There isn't. Now, what's interesting about this is that you go to the other side, the kind of the self-esteem movement, there's very little evidence that that boosts performance. What seems to boost performance more than anything else is one of, to me, one of the most underappreciated bodies of research out there is started by a woman named Kristen Neff at the University of Texas called self-compassion. Self-compassion, even though it sounded to, to me, to my sort of hard-headed ears, a little gooey, that, that phrase. The, we have 20 years of evidence that what you should do is treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, recognize that mistakes are part of the human condition, recognize that you're not that special. That is, you know, any regret that either of you guys have, I can find it in 43 seconds in this database of 25,000 regrets. Any regret that I have, I can find. You're not that special. Regrets are part of the human experience. Mistakes are part of the human experience. Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt and understand that any misstep is a moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. And it turns out that that approach is productive um, and no one ever teaches us how to do it. So that's one thing that we can do. Another thing that we can do is we can talk about our regrets. Um, uh, we can even write about our regrets. Uh, there's some very interesting research, again, also from the University of Texas, James Pennebaker has found over many, many years that when we write about negative emotions, um, we convert this blobby abstraction to concrete words that makes them less menacing. Um, there is sometimes a relief in disclosure. Uh, and then it's very important that we actually think analytically and draw a lesson from that. Um, you know, what did I learn from this and what am I going to do differently? And when we take that systematic approach, treat ourselves with kindness, not contempt, disclose and talk about them and explicitly draw lessons from them. That then, then it's like the, the reason that it seems like that that's hard to do is that we don't know how to do it. Once you know how to do it, you know, it becomes, it becomes a uh, hygienic in a way. And do you so, think there's a, a moderate? No, Doug, your turn. Go for it. 
So, um, I like everything you just said. I'm told that often in, in my own therapy session. So I'm, I'm glad I'm, uh, you know, getting, getting good value out of those, uh, weekly appointments here. Be, uh -huh. be easy on yourself. I'm told that a lot, but it's great advice. It, it really is, you know, treat yourself with some grace. Look, this is, this is a money podcast. We talk about uh, all things having to do with money and personal finance here. Um, so it wouldn't be right if we didn't talk about um, the relationship between risk and regret. Like yeah. regret doesn't necessarily have to come from, you know, taking on, uh, uh, you know, risk and it not panning out. But it's hard to not have the conversation of how these two things aren't connected. And we would love our audience to know how we can think about the functions of risk and regret. Uh, I'd love to hear that from you. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so, so risk isn't, so uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about with any certainty about risk because risk is in some ways a kind of a mathematical point. Um, that is how much, you know, what are the probabilities and how much, how much of that uh, high or low probability are you willing to withstand at what price? Now, what we also see though is are, are two very important things. The first is that one of the big categories of regrets from around the world are what I call boldness regrets. Okay. A boldness regret is when someone's at a juncture in their life and they have a choice. They can play it safe or they can take the chance. They can play it safe or they can take the chance. And it doesn't matter the domain of life. It's just that moment. I have hundreds of people who regret not asking somebody out on a date years ago. They're not spinning wild fantasies that they would become married to that person or whatever, but they say at that moment, I could have stepped up and taken a shot and I didn't. And I regret that. You have lots of people who regret not starting businesses. You have some people who regret starting businesses that went south on them. But for every one of those, you have 50 who regret not starting a business. You regret people who regret not studying abroad, people who regret not speaking up at work, that, that there is this thing that at this juncture in our lives, play it safe versus taking the chance, people tend to regret not taking the chance. Um, now, again, that's different from risk. That doesn't say put all your money in, you know, uh, Bitcoin, um, which is, a, you know, but, but what it says is that as a as a principle of life, I think there's a very strong argument for a bias toward action, for doing stuff, for trying stuff, even if there's uncertainty about where it's going to lead. One other data point, I did a very large public opinion survey the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted. Uh, it's a really good survey. And I did it with a very large sample to look for demographic differences in what people regret um, um, by race, by gender. Uh, I looked at like belief in God, uh, introversion, extroversion. I mean, it was amazing. I spent a lot of time and a lot of money and I found very few demographic differences. The one demographic difference that I found, which was powerful was age. And here's what we found. When people are in the people in their 20s tend to have equal numbers of regrets about of action and inaction, equal numbers of regrets about what they did and what they didn't do. But over time, it's not even close. 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond. It's two to one, sometimes three to one regrets of inaction over regrets of action. And it's probably one of the starkest. It's also in the existing literature. It was, I had this, this massive, I guess, this massive survey and we're not finding like statistically significant things in most realms. But on this one, you have this like, this giant thing calling out at us that over time we regret what we didn't do much more than what we did. 
And I think, I think that's, I think there's, a, I think there's a, here's a giant lesson there. I feel like when we talk about risk and counterfactuals, there's probably this situation where people tell themselves totally false stories about what could have been. So you look back and you say, oh, what if I hadn't taken this job? Well, the other job probably would have, might have been okay too. And that job that you didn't take would have sucked anyways. What, oh, what if I had bought this stock? You probably would have sold anyways halfway through. Like you're always telling yourself a fake story about what could have been. And maybe one takeaway from that is like, no matter what you do, even if you take the chance and it all works out, you're still going to regret something. We're just regretful at our nature because we're constantly telling ourselves a fake story about what could have been in this different world. I think that's possible. And I think, I think we can steer around that. And, and that goes to one of your earlier questions about regretting the right things. Um, you know, like to me, it's very, it's, it's very clear if, if, okay, let's, here we go. Let's um, put on our calendars a, uh, a second half of this interview in 10 years. All right. And I want you to think about having conversations with the, a conversation with the three of us in 10 years. I can predict pretty well what all three of us are going to regret. And not a single one of us is going to regret having bought a gray car versus a blue car this year. All right. What we are going to regret is I had a friend or someone I cared about and I wanted to reach out to them and I didn't reach out to them. And now we've grown further apart or I don't even have the opportunity to do that. I had a chance to live fully, take chances, do stuff, see stuff. And you know what? 10 years went by and I didn't do anything. Um, I uh, was at a juncture where I could do the right thing or the wrong thing, and I did the wrong thing, and it still bugs me, you know. Though, and, and so, what we what's really important is is that we don't, you know, have the kind of fabulism that you're talking about, Morgan, on everything, but actually use this powerful emotion to make better decisions about what really matters. And one of the things that we know is that, and in da- I'm not saying in investing, although maybe in investing too, but in day in regular lives, most of our decisions don't matter but some of them matter significantly. And so, you know, so you, you, you see this with, you know, people, you know, um, uh, uh, spending hours and hours and hours figuring out what silverware to buy for their house and not spending time saying, how can I spend more time with my friends and my loved ones? And so, um, and, and again, we can use this powerful emotion and this understanding of what people regret to make better decisions about what matters. And most stuff doesn't matter. And that's not anything we wanna hear. But most of it doesn't I, matter. I think yeah. you're spot on with that. I um, stumbled across, and I forget whose thread it was, no pun intended, with what's going on right now with Instagram and threads and all that, or meta and uh, threads. It was, it was a thread about, you know, you're going to see an old friend, uh, get invited out for drinks with an old friend who's in town, you know, from your childhood. And you ask yourself, really, how many more times you're going to have the opportunity to go get that drink? And when you really think about it critically, it's something like, four, maybe exactly. two or three. And it's extraordinary. So you're spot on, right? That when you break it down or you reword it like that about people in your life, whether it's your kids or your friends or family, you'll get too many cracks at that. Like that time is certainly super fleeting. I feel a little silly because I thought 10 years from now, our mutual regret would be not getting the Grimace Berry Purple Shake from McDonald's that has now been pulled from the shelf. But you know, okay, time with loved ones works just the same, I, I, I guess, here. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. but it, but but that what you're talking about there, Doug, is actually a really really healthy move, and there's some really good research on this. Cassie Holmes at UCLA has done this kind of work. Laura Carstensen started this work about time perspectives. Uh, Hal Hirschfield also at UCLA has done a lot of this, and that is a very good technique. I, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll I'll testify to it by making a decision by a decision that I did very recently uh, in my own life. So 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 I've got a 20 year old son. He just finished his sophomore year of college. He has a he goes to college in the Midwest and he we live in Washington and he has a summer job in New Orleans. And so he came back to Washington and he said, we have this like old car, this this 10 year old Prius that giving to him and he needs it for his job in New Orleans. And he says, God, I want to drive to New Orleans, but I'm not I'm not keen on driving to New Orleans two day trip by myself. And he said, will you guys come with me? And I said, no freaking way. I'm not driving all the way to New Orleans. That's horrible. I hate driving a two day drive. And then I changed my tune because I said, how many opportunities am I going to have to take a long car drive with this extraordinary human being who actually wants to take a long car drive with me? Like it literally might be only one more time. And and I said, I'm stepping up. I'm going to New Orleans. And so, you know, it didn't seem like a great idea when we were at a Taco Bell in Mississippi eating lunch. But. I'm gl- I'm totally glad I'm totally glad that I did it because I literally might not do that again. And when we think about it in those ways, um, it is concentrating. I, I really encourage you guys. You should t- talk to uh, Laura Carstensen at Stanford, who has done a lot of this kind of research, showing, for instance, that as people get older, um, they have fewer friends. For instance, their friendship network shrinks, and it seems like that's a sad story. But what's going on is that the people at the periphery are being actively eliminated. So you can spend your time with people you actually deeply care about. And, and so the sense that time is fleeting concentrates our minds and, and, make, and, and allows us to make decisions that uh, it, it, do better at making decisions that are long term good for us in a deep way rather than superficially exciting in a, uh, in a, in a short term way. I almost wonder, too, if something like the car trip with your son, and there's so many other examples of this, were at the time, as you actually did it, were at least during moments a pain in the ass as you're sitting totally. there on this long car ride, eating at Taco Bell. But in 10 years, that's going to create a level of nostalgia that's off the charts. And that makes these regrets even harder because even while we're doing it, you're like, ah, this sucks. But in the future, it's going to be one of your greatest memories. Absolutely right. Absolutely. There is this, uh, there's another, again, there's another really interesting phenomenon. I just came out, Dan Gilbert at Harvard and a, and a young researcher named Adam Mastriani did a brilliant piece of work recently showing that uh, we have a tendency to think that the, the, the present sucks and the past was amazing. And the reason for that is exactly what you're talking about, Morgan, because when we think about the past, we forget all the, we forget what it was like uh, driving through a thunderstorm on a dark road in Alabama. And we remember what it was like saying, God, you know, like what a great kid and he's doing such interesting things and I'm so proud of him. And, you know, I'm so glad to be able to spend this time with him. And, um, you know, and you, you remember not the terrible meal at Taco Bell, but you remember, um, uh, the, like basically that you remember this moment when we were in a McDonald's somewhere and, um, my son is very tall. He's like six, seven. He's very, very tall. And um, and some little kid says to him, do you play in the NBA? And uh, are you in the NBA? And my son says, almost. And then the kid asked him to sign his shirt. 
So wow. you have that kind of like, so that's just a random moment. And so, so I'm not going to remember the thunderstorm in Alabama. I'm not going to remember the crappy hotel in Chattanooga. I'm not going to remember the awful Taco Bell meal in, in Mississippi. But over time, as I reflect back on that, I'm going to remember it's so exciting to, ha to have this kid with this cool job in New Orleans that he was launched on. And what a funny moment we had at that McDonald's where they thought some little kid thought he played in the NBA. What wow. a great More spot. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. It was only a few weeks ago, really, that you know Morgan and I were were messaging each other. I think our our Instagram algorithm had figured out, you know, that we we are parents of young children. It's amazing to hear this and where your kids are. We we have like four and seven year olds respectively, so we're go we're going through it. But we, we our social media algos had like figured out we're we're suckers for like you know the memories and not wanting and and there was the one Morgan that that you shared with me about the time machine it was the next time your kids are melting down and shouting in your face and acting horrible imagine you're 80 years old and you get a time machine and you only get to go to one moment in time and it's that one the one that you're being shouted out in your face by your kid and the only thing the only thing you're going to be thinking to yourself and saying to your child is give me more yes keep shouting have at it and then you just give them a hug and and you know we we you know we're like dang dang like and i for now many many weeks morgan i don't know if you still think about that one but i do i do and to then hear the story about driving uh, on a road trip to new orleans you know is proof in the pudding right there can i can i see doug can i see your thought experiment and raise you on that the um uh, so i've done this little kind of exercise with okay so i'm like 20 years ahead of you guys because my kids are in their 20s all right so um so I, but for parents of my ilk um, I've said this, how much, imagine you could get in a time machine and you've got, I got a, a thing about my, I'm detecting today happened with my 24 year old daughter. All right. So, um, so imagine a parent of a 24 year old and say, listen, here's what you can do. I get this time machine here in my office. You can get into it. Um, it can take you back 20 years and you can read a story to your four year old daughter. Who's now 24. How much would you pay for that? Ugh. Right. And, and, and. You can, I mean, you build this thing, you can make a lot of money, man, based on my <laughs> limited sample of parents in their, of kids in their 20s. Like, oh my God, I would pay, you know, I don't even know. It's like, I would pay almost any price for that moment. And then, but I remember as a parent of a four-year-old saying, oh my God, another freaking story. I don't know if I can deal with this. You know, what's so interesting you bring this up. My daughter is four. And last night, as we're getting ready for bed, my wife said, do you want to read to her? And I said, no, I'm kind of tired. Last night that happened. Well, wait, wait, wait till you wait, wait till you get old and creaky like me and you will look back and you will forget all the meltdowns and all the pain and all the cleaning up and all the difficulty. And you will say, wow, if only I could go back in time and read a story to four year old Eliza who would want not, who wanted nothing more in her life at that moment than to be read the book Yoko for the 87th time. But I also wonder if whether the older generation is just as oblivious to what it was like at when you had kids who were four as the younger generation is to how much you're going to miss them when they're 24. I always have older friends who say, Oh, you're going to miss these moments with your young kids. You're going to, and I'm like, really? Cause this is hard. 
this is really hard. I haven't slept in weeks and our house is a mess. And I wonder, like, am I oblivious to what the future is going to be? Or do they just not remember how hard this stage was? Yes, it's both. And one of the other things that you that you think about is at least, I mean, I hate to sound, I hate, I hate to sound like the grizzled old veteran, um, but you know, one of the things that happens over time to us as professionals of, of, of any kind is that you get pretty good at something. And, um, and as you get pretty good at something, it becomes much more difficult to get incrementally better at it. And that can be frustrating depending on how much you have an urge for growth and, and learning. And so, what I'm starting to do is do some things where that I'm not very good at, if largely because so I can get that kind of hit of a learning curve that goes up. So let me be specific. I just came back from a, uh, I just took a two week intensive acting course in New York, having never taken acting, having never studied acting before. And the reason I did it, I think there's some great insights for writers and understanding acting. That's a, that's a reason that I did it. But the other reason that I did it is that I don't know how to do it. And so I was able to, you know, and I said to my wife, when, I, when I'm taking these, this course, I'm doing three hours a night, I'm memorizing scenes, she's running lines with me, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm a total novice, I was never in a high school play. Um, and, um, and I loved every second of it, because it's like, oh my God, this is what it's like to like learn and grow like this, rather than like this. And so I just think that the more we can look for ways to recreate that 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 slope, even if we're starting from a low base, I find that really I find that really fulfilling. And if we look at it through the lens of regret, there is no way on God's green earth. Um, Ten years from now, I'm going to look back and say, oh, what a waste of time. I shouldn't have taken that acting class. No way. I'm going to take more, first of all. Um, and, but I can I can totally see looking back 10 years from now and saying, oh, I can't believe I spent two weeks in June of 2023 answering email, which I didn't do because I was acting. I, I would imagine that is mostly true for people who have big success when they're young. Like if you're a pro athlete and you're amazing at age 25, almost certainly you're going to be worse at 35 and, yeah. and probably done by 35. And for those people, it's like if, you're, if you can't get incrementally better, the more you're going to kind of stall at that phase. I think it's true for all kinds of professionals. I think it's true. I think I, I hear it from, from friends of mine in my age who are doctors, who are professors. You know, I've taught this course – I've taught this particular subject, you know, 19 years in a row. And so the 20th year that I teach it is not going to be that much better. I'll try to make it a little bit better, but it's actually not going to be that much better. I've been seeing patients in my, you know, OB-GYN uh, profession practice for 21 years. And I care about every patient and I try to give every patient the best care that I could possibly give them. And yet... I'm only becoming an incrementally better OBGYN compared to last year. And that's okay. That's what it means to be good at something. But there's a cost. And, you know, and depending on how obsessive you are, it's a cost that one that some people don't want to bear. And if we also refract this through the lens of longevity, then it suggests that what we want to do is we want to actually maybe have a life full of maybe bolder reinventions than we typically have configured our lives to, to be. Well, Dan, awesome. I think you're, you're the best in the world at what you do. And this conversation has hey, been a perfect example of that. So thank you so much for, for joining us doing this. Thanks to Daniel Pink for joining us here today. He is the author of several New York Times bestsellers, including Drive, The Power of Regret, and To Sell is Human. 
That'll do it for this episode of Mind Your Money. If you enjoyed listening in, be sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up with our latest shows. Once again, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.